Let us pray together. Our dear God, we pray that you will grant that the preaching of your word now be faithful and the hearing of your word be fruitful. Send your word home in power. We pray for those here. We pray as well for all who will hear this word preached. And so humble us and glorify yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been here very long, you know I'm not a very occasional preacher. I don't preach Mother's Day sermons or Father's Day sermons or Arbor Day sermons or Groundhog Day sermons. I just preach uh, on the occasion of the resurrection of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, New Year and Reformation Day, and that's usually just about it. Making an exception, though, as you see, the title of the sermon is Pride Month, question mark, quote unquote. American culture has decided that June is Pride Month. It is uniquely American to take the name of one deadly sin and name an entire month after it to celebrate another deadly sin, or in this case, a cluster of deadly sins. This is sheer psyops. This is psychological operations. You know the best defense is a good offense. So if there's something that in your heart you're actually ashamed of, that you know is shameful, well, then you insist you're proud about it. And you know that when a, the more a person says he's really proud of something, no, he's really proud. No, I swear, honestly, I'm very proud of this. The more he has to say that, the more you know that in his heart he knows it's not really something to be proud of, and he's putting on a strong front. Well, here we have an entire month devoted to celebrating this cluster of sins. And it celebrates an acronym that has grown each year. It started out as gay rights, then it became gay and lesbian rights, then gay, lesbian, bisexual rights. And now it's up to a 10 character acronym. It is now 2SLGBTQIA+. And it becomes increasingly apparent what that plus is that they're not willing to say out loud yet. But all of the groomers and all of the corporations that eagerly and increasingly sexualize children, they tell us what that plus is. And what was a horror 30 years ago is accepted now. And what's still a bit of a horror today, they are working hard to make accepted tomorrow. And this is all about that. But you may be relieved to know that this whole sermon is not about that cluster. It's not about the acronym. It's not about all of those specifics primarily. No, in this sermon we're going to focus our attention on the root of all that. The sin that is the poison fountainhead of all that. We're going to focus on the pride. And we'll see, indeed, it's a very well-named month. Striking, isn't it? Mothers don't get a whole month. Fathers don't get a whole month. Veterans don't get a whole month. But this gets a whole month. But my argument has been, will be, that it has been a whole lot more than a month that we've celebrated pride as a race. So let's look together first at what pride did, as the Bible shows us, Roman numeral one. What pride did, and pride can boast two massive feats, two massive accomplishments. We'll look at them in turn. First letter A, pride made a devil out of an angel. Pride made a devil out of an angel. So let's look first at what God created. Number one in your outline, and and let's turn together by which I mean please open your Bible and turn to Ezekiel chapter 28 and look at these words with me. Now as you're finding it, let me say, um, we're looking at some sections that are, are, are much controverted among interpreters and I can't expound them all in details. This will be a, a fairly brief look at these sections. <clears throat> in Ezekiel 28 verses 1 through 10 are addressed to the leader of Tyre, the Nagid, and that's a uh, Uh, a a general term. But then in verse 11, it starts all over and addresses the king of Tyre. 
verse 11 says, And the word of Yahweh came to me, saying... Now, this is like a fresh oracle to the prophet, but he's already devoted 10 verses to the leader of Tyre. And now it's no longer the leader of Tyre, it's the king of Tyre. And it's uh, my view, and the view of many, not all, that the king of Tyre is the power behind the power. The leader of Tyre is the human king of Tyre. But the king of Tyre is the spirit that animates him, the spirit that is behind them. We've seen in Daniel that there are spirits in different areas, demonic and angelic as well. Here, I believe, we look through the human leader and see behind him the animating spirit of Satan. And so it's of Satan that this oracle speaks. The language you will see gets elevated beyond what could be said about any human being. So let's look first, and we're going to see first that this being, this angelic being, was created with great beauty. We're looking at what God created. He created it with great beauty. Verse 12, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says, the, says Lord Yahweh, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And then he names nine uh, gems. And these are nine of the 12 gems that were on the breastpiece of the high priest of Israel uh, for, as we're told, glory and for beauty. Nine of those 12 composed a covering for this being. So he had great beauty. He was perfect in beauty. He had these glorious stones. Just imagine the beauty and the splendor of one who wore this as his coat, a coat that was, uh, is bedecked with all of these brilliant and lovely uh, precious jewels and set in gold. He had beauty. Secondly, he had a high position. Look at verse 13 again. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You think of cherubs who cover in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, as the two cherubs covered the Ark of the Covenant with their wings. Well, this one had the position of a guardian cherub. This is a very high position. This is a very highly placed individual. And Yahweh says, I placed you there. In the second part of verse 14, you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. So he had great beauty as created by God. He had a high position as created by God. And he had moral soundness as created by God. Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways. They were absolutely consistent with one who, who loved and, and believed in Yahweh. He walked in line all of him in, his, in all parts of his life with dedication to Yahweh. So, beauty, high position, moral soundness. And what was the source of all this? How did he have these striking traits? Twice we're told what the source is. Verse 13, these beautiful stones, this gold was in you on the day that you were, what's the word? Created. He had these things by creation. And again, verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were, it says what? Created. So these were not his achievements. These were not his accomplishments. They were all the gift from the hand of his creator. God created him with beauty, high position, moral flawlessness. This from the hand of God. That's what God made. But now let's see what pride forged. Number two, what pride forged. And there is a bit of a word play there because a metalsmith forges something, but a forger forges something too, doesn't he? A forgery can be a creation of a metal worker or it can be an imitation of a con artist. So let's see what pride forged. Reading about this same being, look at verse 15. All this was true of him, verse 15, the, the latter part, until unrighteousness was found in you. Perversion, twistedness, wrongness, unrighteousness. How did this happen? Verse 17, your heart was lofty because of your beauty. This quality for which he could take no credit that was not his achievement or his accomplishment, that was his by a gift of God, he, his heart became lofty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. 
These gifts became his points of boasting. And thus he fell and he rebelled and committed the violence of rebellion against God. Let's read about this same individual. Now I hope you've all got your Bibles open. Turn to Isaiah chapter 14. And more about what pride forged here. Isaiah 14 is a similar thing. Here it's the king of Babylon, the spirit animating that king. And again, controversy among uh, interpreters, but I take this as being the wicked spirit that is behind uh, the human ruler. He's speaking of Satan. So uh, we start in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, five intentions, five announcements. First, I will ascend to heaven. Second, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, all the other angels. Third, and I will sit in the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. Fourth, I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. Fifth, I will make myself like the most high. But God says, nevertheless, you will be brought down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. What a calamity. What a calamity. What a tragedy. This being created by God with such glory and beauty, as we would say, the glory and beauty goes to his head, and he looks at these traits as if they were not created traits, but innate traits. And... He insists that it isn't good enough for him. What God made him, which we would all look on and see, that was a glorious thing God made him, but it wasn't enough for him. He must impose his will on his creator. He must create himself. He must decide who he is, redefine himself as his own recreator. He would insist, I am the master of my destiny. I am the captain of my soul. And so he's going to defy his creator in his own self-creation. And I, I just tell you, friends, that is the heart, the diseased black heart of pride. That's the essence of pride. What is the essence of pride? My will be done in heaven as on earth. That's the essence of pride I will be as God. I will be my own God. I will be others' God. That's the essence of pride. Pride made an angel into a devil. Nah, but what of us? Number two, letter B. Letter B, pride made a fugitive out of a son. Fugitive, F-U-G-I-T-I-V-E. And what is a fugitive? A guilty person on the run. Pride made a fugitive out of his son. Well, again, let's start the same place. What did God create? Number one, what God created. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1 to see what God created. Verses 26 and 27. Having created all the rest of creation, mineral and celestial and animal and angelic creation for that matter, Then God said, verse 27, let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they may have dominion over the fish of the sea. And he names all the categories of animals. He's to rule over all of them. Verse 27, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then verse 31, and God saw all that he had made and behold, it was what? Very good. And who, what are the names of this man and woman that he created? Adam and Eve. And you read in Luke chapter 3 as uh, Luke, in reverse order of Matthew, traces the genealogy of Jesus back to the beginning. And he says that so and such was the son of Adam, the son of God. He calls Adam the son of God. Oh, not the eternal divine son of God as Jesus Christ, but God created him as his father. God created Adam. So he's a son. What did God create? He created man in his image. Now, think about man as God created him. He too had beauty, glory, and a high position. Well, beauty, did he have beauty? In whose image was he created? The image of God. And tell me, 
All the beauty that you and I admire in creation, in art, in music, anywhere you see it, where does all that beauty come from? Who thought beauty up? God, and here's one created in the image of God. Was Adam beautiful? Adam was beautiful. Was Eve beautiful? Eve was beautiful. Why? They were created to be God's image in the world. They, they reflected the glory of God. Yes, they had beauty. Did they have a high position? Well, God put them over all creation and told them to rule it and to exercise dominion over it and to fill the earth. Create a staff. Staff all the offices take over control and rulership of the world under God. They stood in his position. And so beauty, honor, high position. How about moral, moral uh, flawlessness? Yes, Adam wasn't created with sin. Eve wasn't created with sin. Their, their righteousness had not been tested yet. It was going to be tested. But they had a natural native uh, righteousness to them by the creation of God, or they would not have been the image of God. They wouldn't have reflected God's image. And think of the uh, glorious harmony in which they lived. They were at peace with God. They were at peace with all creation. They were at peace with each other. And they were at peace within. They didn't have a down day. They didn't have regrets. They didn't have guilt. They didn't have self-doubt. They probably didn't think about themselves a whole, whole great deal at all. They were focused on God's and the task at hand and God's creation and on each other. Man was at harmony. Man was at peace. He was in a perfect world. And this by God's creation. God created Adam and Eve to a position shared by no other creature. Even this glorious angel we talked about, he didn't share the glorious position that Adam and Eve were given. That's what God created. But now let's consider what pride forged. Number two, what pride forged. Oh, this idyllic tale doesn't last very long, does it, literarily? Just takes up a couple of chapters, and then chapter 3 dashes everything. In chapter 2, verse 17, God had told Adam, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God the Creator, God His Creator, God the Creator of all says, do not eat from it, for in the day you eat from it, you will surely die. The God who created him, the God who created the tree, says you will surely die. Don't eat. And what do we see just in the next chapter? This wily creature, the serpent used by Satan, who is now wise with the wisdom of a rebel, of a twisted, perverted creation of God, perverted by pride and rebellion. Now we see him going and doing his best to loosen Eve's grasp of confidence in God and submission to God. Tries to paint God as not good, not wise, and not to be trusted. And he asks about this tree, and the woman says, well, God says, don't eat it or touch it. Uh, for in the day you eat it, you will surely die. And what does Satan say in verse 4? You surely will not die. He says exactly what God says, but with the word not added. You will surely not die. What God says is wrong, not to be trusted. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Now, a little aside, you'll be like God. She already was like God. Adam already was like God. They were created in the image of God. Oh, but this is like God's, like your own little God. You will be your own little God if you eat this tree and come to autonomous knowledge, knowledge on your own terms, not in submission to God. And so she saw that to her lights in, in casting the word of God aside, God the creator, tree looked good for food, delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise, despite already having all that from God's hand, despite the fact that he would give them everything they need if they simply trusted him. Despite all that, she took from its fruit and ate, gave it to her husband. He ate. And sure enough, their eyes are open. The first thing they know is guilt and vulnerability. They know that they're judged. They know that they have no defense. They are naked and ashamed. And then comes God, and what a glorious turn this should be. And a healthy man and woman would flee to him, fall on their faces and say, we've sinned, we did what you said not to do. 
How can you, for, can you possibly forgive us? Can you possibly redeem us? Can you possibly restore us? But what do they do in verse 8? They hear the sound of Yahweh walking in the garden. And what do they do? They hide themselves from the presence of Yahweh in the midst of the trees of the garden that he made and that he was on every side of already. But what are they doing? They're fugitives. They're fleeing now because they're in a world created and ruled by God, but they've rebelled against God. In their pride, they have opposed their will to God. And what does the Bible say in so many words? In one place, Ephesians, Romans 6.23, summing it up, the wages of sin is death. Death, not just the cessation of a brain waves and a pulse, but death on every level. And they knew death. And they were children of God, but Ephesians 2.3 says now they're children of wrath. Now they're children of wrath. They have earned and merited God's wrath, and they know it. And so now they're fugitives. Now they're ever hiding, and all their children are born on the run, hiding, incessantly making things up to substitute for God and for God's truth, incessantly trying to create their own world in which they can have an illusion of comfort and peace and hope, constantly distracting themselves with shiny objects from thoughts of death and judgment, and hell. Constantly fugitives. This is what pride has made. God made a glorious angel. God made a glorious man and woman. Pride ruined them both and made them rebels and fugitives. Now let's look in the present tense, Roman numeral 2, what our pride does. What our pride does, and in considering what our pride does, let's consider the invariable root of all pride. What is it, the root of all pride? All pride is rebellion. It's all rebellion against God. Both Satan and Adam were created with flawless beauty, and they are both exceeding good. Genesis 1.31, they are both tov ma'od, exceedingly good. But neither one was content to be defined by God. Neither one was content to be what God created them as in submission to their creator. Satan wanted to exalt himself above God. Eve was enticed to be as God. Adam followed her in this sinful act. And so we all are in that same boat with them. They are representatives. Adam, our representative, to be more biblical, Adam, our representative, put us into that category of fallen, guilty, dead sinners. Now, think it through with me. Make, make yourself think about this reasonably. Now, something in all of us resists being categorized. Something in all of us resists being told where we should stand, what we should be, told to stay put where we should be. Uh, we resist that. We don't like that. Although, as an aside, isn't it interesting that liberals now are fine with the state doing that? They're fine with the state telling you, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, get a shot, Think this, say this, bake the cake, run your business our way. But that's kind of an aside. We'll, we'll talk about that more next week, Lord willing, actually. But the one defining relationship that is unlike any other relationship in which we don't want to be told what we are, what to do, where to be, but there is one relationship that is unlike any other relationship, and that's the relationship with God. Because make yourself think about it rationally. God is wise. God alone is wise, as Scripture says. All of us at our best borrow some wisdom from God. He's like the sugar shop we get a cup from occasionally, at best. But He knows everything, and only He knows everything. Literally everything. He knows how things fit with each other, and only He knows that. He knows the meaning of everything. How does He know these things? Has He had years and years to study? How does God know these things? because he created these things, because he decreed these things. He knows them by virtue of being God. He doesn't even have to study. He just knows because he's God. And so he literally invented the idea of humanity. He literally had the idea of human beings, or for that matter, angelic beings. It's not like he found a book, you know, things you ought to create, you know, and pages around and say, oh, look, here's something I haven't made. Uh, what's that supposed to be? No, it wasn't like that at all. It was his idea. It was his flawlessly wise, good conception. And so if 
A human being tells us everything we ought to be on his own authority. Well, he doesn't have that right. But if our Creator says that, then really, who else knows better, including ourselves? Who knows better than God who we should be, what we should be, what we should mean? It is, and think about this again, and then, and then we can relax a little bit. But, but make yourself think about this. Is it literally even possible that if we pitted all of our intelligence together, that we could come up with one idea better for our happiness than any idea God has? Is that possible? No. It's not even possible. And yet, Satan was not content. Adam was not content. We are not content. Because the root of pride is rebellion. My authority over his. My will be done. So, that's the invariable root, rebellion. Now let's talk about the invariable root. But this time it's (laughs) R-O-U-T-E. The invariable root, or you might say route. This is the route that pride invariably takes. It's the progression that pride invariably follows. R-O-U-T-E, the invariable route or route. Proverbs tells us, you know these verses, you maybe just didn't know the verse, but Proverbs 16, 18 is the one you probably most of you know. Pride goes before what? Destruction. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Just like if you ever see someone in a movie say, what could go wrong? You immediately say, oh, (laughs) don't say that. Something will go terribly wrong. And likewise, When you see pride, the next thing that's going to happen is destruction. Inevitably, invariably. And the same for a haughty spirit. Proverbs 16, 18. Secondly, Proverbs 18, 12. Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. Haughtiness, inflated ego, precedes destruction. And finally, Proverbs 29, verse 23a. A man's lofty pride will bring him low. That's the invariable route that pride takes. Pride always precedes and is followed by calamity. Happened for Satan, and he's on his way to eternity in the lake of fire. Happened for Adam. So now let's talk about the invariable fruit of pride. Letter C, and that invariable fruit is death on every level. Death on every level. Now take those Bibles that you have open in your lap and turn them to, or on your phone, turn them to Romans chapter 1. And oh, wouldn't I love to uh, preach at great length on this chapter, but we're just going to have to look at it somewhat briefly. Death is let loose by our rebellion. Paul lays out the thesis of this section in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So this is his statement. His statement is that God is in history visiting his wrath on us because of our suppression of the truth that we possess. That is, it's not that things that we don't know, it's things we do know, but suppress. We tamp it down, we reject it. And so he expands that in the verses that follow. First he says in verses 19 and 20, God made them known by creation. You can see that God is mighty and that there is a God simply and, and plainly by looking at creation. And so he says all men are without excuse. They look at creation, they see the works of God. But verses 21 through 23, man wanted no part of it. Even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts was darkened. He says, so this is, this is God, this is man. God shows himself in creation, and man says, no, thanks, don't want any part of that. I do not want to thank him, and I certainly won't glorify him. I certainly won't give him the place that he deserves. I'll decide what I want to worship, and except it won't be him. It'll be something. Man has to worship. That, that's our nature. But I'm not going to worship him. And so the judgments that follow that, I, I'm going to show you, are death on four fronts. Death on four fronts, letter B. First, first judgment on us 
is the death of sound intellect. Verses 21 and 22. Even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or give thanks. Now that is a necessary premise to all human thought. That's why the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what is it to fear God? It's to glorify Him as God and thank Him. But they would not do that. And what was the necessary result in judgment? They became futile in their thoughts. Their thoughts became pointless. Would produce nothing. Just talk and just empty thoughts. And their foolish heart was darkened. So they bump around in a room saying, Oh, this is a Quinglehofer. And this is a Polyptibipti. And they just make things up. Because they don't know what they are. Because they're in the dark. And then we'll look at verse 22 again in a moment. But professing to be wise, they, become, they became fools. What they say they are and what they are two different things. Verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper. So there is definitely an intellectual death that's the result of our proud rebellion. We kill ourselves. We make it impossible to think wise, coherent thoughts that fit the world we live in. Why? Because we live in a created world, created and defined by God. And if we refuse that premise, well, then everything we say is going to end up being ultimately wrong about it. Death of sound intellect. Secondly, death in sexual identity. Verses 24 through 27. This is the one part that focuses on what this month is about, specifically. Death in sexual identity. Therefore, because of this rebellion against God, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies, which were created by God to image and serve God, would be dishonored. God created them in glory, but man in his pride dishonors his own body among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their females, and there he uses a technical Greek word to, to name that sex, the female sex. For their females exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the males abandoned the natural function of the females and burned in their desire, I might translate craving, toward one another, male with males committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, I know what many homosexuals would say reading that, saying that the females exchange the natural function for what is unnatural, and the males likewise abandon the natural for what is unnatural, doing unnatural acts. And they'd say, but it is natural for me. They would say, this is the way I felt my entire life. It's perfect. It may not be natural for you, but I've never had the kind of desires you have in my entire life. I've had the kind of desires I have my whole life. It's the only desires I know. I can't imagine desiring in a different way. It's perfectly natural for me. But you see, (laughs) that follows the whole point, the whole central essence of pride and rebellion, because what does that do? It defines what's natural by what? By what I feel, by what I want. By my subjective judgment, because after all, well, this is the part you don't say out loud, but I am kind of God, so I get to define what I want. But what does Paul mean when he says unnatural? He means you weren't created for that. He means the thing that we all can see, including all the Pride Month celebrators, and it's why they are infuriated when someone brings it up and need to change the subject. But we can all see, well, God made, in the human race, he made two sexes. He made males and he made female. And the created design function of each is very plain. And to perpetuate the race, there's just really one way it works. I mean, there's just only one way it works that perpetuates the race. Because that's the way females were created, and that's the way males were created. So when Paul says unnatural, what he means is divorced by, from created biology. As, as not, other than defined by the way God created males and females, created men and women. And so you see, there's a natural progression here in, in homosexual type thinking, because homosexual thinking divorces desire from biology. 
Do you follow me? So yes, biologically you were created a male and males are meant to marry females and produce children with their female wife. But you've decided that just because that's your biology, it doesn't define your desire. You don't have to desire a woman. Desire whatever you want. Desire another man. Desire one of each. Fifteen of each. Doesn't matter. And on and on. And I won't get grosser, but you know it does. <laughs> so, but your biology, isn't, it doesn't dictate your desire. Well, you see now, if you've granted that, that biology doesn't dictate desire, then how much of a step to say that biology doesn't dictate identity either? Just because I'm created a, a man doesn't mean I need to desire a woman. Just because I'm created a man doesn't mean I need to identify as a man. It's a short step from desire to identity, and that's where they are. And, and what, is the whole, what is the whole endeavor? What is this whole project? It's just that. You, you, you create me the way you want, but that doesn't bind me. I'll decide what I am. I'll decide what I want. I'll decide what my desires are. I'll decide who I am. I swear if people could, they'd break the law of gravity. It's just, they can't. But you know the truth here that we're seeing very sadly? They can't break this law either. And people who say they're becoming the other sex, no, they're not. They are, but they are disfiguring themselves and harming themselves badly in a futile attempt to recreate themselves when they've already been created by a wise and good and loving God. Death in sexual identity. Thirdly, death in social interaction. Verses 29 through 31. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind. And they just categorizes a typical day on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, just a typical day in society. What, what do you see? Wickedness, greed, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, haters of God. On and on and on. This, this is the fruit of pride and social interaction. Reverse tape, Adam and Eve at peace with each other in their world. Fast forward to today. Everybody hates everybody, including himself, but especially God. And that's, that's what we get from our pride. And then finally, the death of sober inhibition, verse 32. Although they know the righteous requirement or righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things as these are worthy of death, they not, so they're meant to look at that and say, okay, I don't want any part of that. How do I get out of that? Oh, no. Oh, no. They not only do the same, but they name a whole month after the same. Okay, that's a paraphrase. But isn't that exactly an instance of exactly this? They give their hearty approval. There is a tweet from the National Weather Service. The National Weather Service. All about how wonderful it is to the Pride Month and how we affirm gays and homosexuals and how great it is, you know, to accept all this and so forth. And I just tweeted, what does that have to do with forecasting the weather? And, and, I, and I said, it's not loving to tell someone that what destroys him, he has no hope of deliverance from. Jesus still redeems sinners. Jesus still redeems every kind of sinner from any sin who simply repents and believes in him. And was, was I thanked for that insight? Hatred, death threats, slander. It, it, was, it was an amazing thing. Yeah, we not only do them, we give hearty approval to those who destroy themselves by them and bring God's judgment on themselves. And then a second thing I want to say about this is that all this is locked in by our pride. Death is let loose by our rebellion, and death is locked in by our pride. We're going to take one more look at Romans 1.22. I know because I asked you to, you've all got your Bibles there. Look at verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Now, there's a little illustration, I think, of, and I, I'm not going to remember the numbers, but you know, they, they, they take, uh, uh, they study what nations are best in math and so forth, and they found that America is like behind everybody in math, but American kids have the highest self-image about math. They, they don't know if, they can't put two and two together to save their lives, but boy, they feel great about themselves. <laughs> and so what's this? Well, I'm wise. Oh, absolutely, I've got this down. Absolutely, I know exactly what I'm doing and where I'm going. That's the self-image. But the reality, he says, is they were made fools. Uh, 
tasty little Greek verb, emoranthesan. What does that sound like, emoranthesan? What English word does that make you think of? Moron. We get that word from, from that verb. Insist, and, and the word professing is a Greek word that really kind of means insisting. That I'm wise, I'm wise, I'm wise. And actually, you're a moron. Actually, by that boasting, you're a moron. And that is locked in, you see, because I can't give that up. Just like the emperor can't admit he's buck naked. He's got so much invested in his new clothes. So I can't admit I don't know what I'm doing. And I need the help of God. I can't do it. Pride locks that in. My self-image is I'm wise. I can't get on my knees before an omnipotent, omniscient God and tell him I've completely ruined my life and I need his mercy and I need his wisdom. So it locks us in. Remember Naaman the Syrian in 2 Kings 5. And you say, I don't remember naming the Syrian. That's okay, I'm going to remind you. There was a, an Aramean or, Aramean or Syrian uh, commander named Naaman. Very successful man. Just one problem. He had a little disease. What was it? He was a leper. He was a leper. And so, by the grace of God, he had a slave girl who was a Jewish girl. And she told him, there's a prophet who can heal you. And so he, he got word to Elisha. And Elisha said, well, you go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times, and you'll, you'll be healed. And what was his reaction? Furious. Because why? Well, because he knew what he should do. He had all worked out in his head what he should do. No, no. What should have happened is you should have heard an person, important person was talking to you. Then you trot your little prophet self over to me. You wave your hand over the disease, and bingo, I'm fine. That's what should happen. And besides, if I'm going to dump, jump in a river, I'm not going to jump in the dirty old Jordan. I'm going to go in Farpar or Abana, one of our own rivers, much better than Jordan. And he's in a fury, and he's just going to stop off. And what's he going to be? He's going to be a leper for the rest of his life. But the little girl says to her master, she says, well, you know, if he'd asked you to do a, a, a huge thing and would have meant your healing, wouldn't you have just done it? How much more if he tells you to dip and be clean? Well, for a rarity... He thought it over, and he decided that that actually made sense. And he went and he dipped in the Jordan, and he was cleansed. But you see, people hear the gospel of Christ. They hear the word of God. I don't need Jesus. I don't need that crutch. I don't need to be forgiven my sins. I don't need any of that. I've got it all together. And so off they go to spend eternity under the wrath of God uh, on the trail of a ruined life on the trail of having ruined themselves. You see, this is the case with us. We are far worse off than lepers. Are we not by our sin? Isn't, aren't the effects of sin far worse than leprosy? Sin shames us, ruins us, beclowns us. Every last one of us. God can forgive us, can renew us, can restore us, can redeem us, if we will but believe in Jesus Christ on God's terms but we don't need him. We can work it all out ourselves. We got this. We got this. Pride. Kill all of us. So let's talk finally about what our pride needs. First, our pride needs a true sight of God. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 6 now. Isaiah 6. We need a true sight of God. Well, here's one right here in Isaiah 6, the year of King Uzziah's death. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. Even these flawless, righteous seraphim were overwhelmed with the sight of God. You know, there's two ways to describe a person or a thing. You can describe it directly or you can describe it in terms of the effect it has on people. And this is what Isaiah does here. The effect that the sight of God has on these flawless seraphim should tell us something. They cover their faces in God's presence. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Holy, that quality of God that means He is entirely one to Himself that he is what he is with absolute purity, absolute distinctness. God is who God is. And so 
The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called out. The whole house was filled with smoke. See, nothing will, hide, will humble us like a true vision of God. I, I certainly remember when it happened to me as a young cultist at age 17. I started getting an inkling of who God was, that God wasn't what I imagined he was, that God was not my servant. He was not mine to define. He was who he was, and who he was was well, everything I wasn't. I was sinful and wicked. He was guilty and pure. I was stupid and lost. He was intelligent and wise. I was weak and powerless. He was mighty and all-powerful. And he was holy. And you know, you have something that looks pretty white until you put it next to something that is pure white. And then you see it actually pretty dingy. Well, in this case, it's not a matter of dinginess. But because, but first you have to see, and this is why people, this is why people, I mean, this is worth a series in itself, but this is why people feel okay about themselves. They weigh themselves by themselves or by other people and not by God. And if the passing grade is the average of everybody else, well, maybe we're okay. But if the passing grade is God, oh boy, that changes everything, doesn't it? Well, it does, literally does exactly that. It changes everything. So the first thing pride needs is to see who God really is. To see God in His glory and His absoluteness and His Lordship. And the second thing pride needs is it needs a true sight of ourselves in that light. And that's the next verse, verse 5. What is Isaiah's reaction to the vision of God? Oh, I'm so glad to see you. I've been writing about you all my life. I'm sure you've read my prophecies. I'm sure that you admire my skill with a word. My can't I turn a Hebrew phrase. Is that what Isaiah said? And I'm sure you appreciate how much better I am than all the idolatrous people living around me. Is that what Isaiah said? Well, you know he could have because I don't know how much he, he may have written at this time. But Isaiah's book is a marvel of eloquence. It really, truly is. And, and of godliness and of wisdom. I mean, it's, it's quite a thing it is. But that's not what the sight of God, that's not how that affected Isaiah at all. Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Ah, see, we feel okay because we think it's all about our values and our feelings and comparing each other with each other. But it's not about our values and our feelings. And it's not about the, the average of humanity. It's about God and God's laws. It's about God's holy righteousness. And in that light, where is there room for pride except groveling and begging for forgiveness? Begging for a swift death, for that matter. So what pride needs is a true sight of God and of ourselves in that light. What pride needs is true life in Christ. Letter B, true life in Christ. Now let's look at how he won this life for us and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And we'll look at verses 5 through 8. Just looking for one thread here. How he won it for us. How did Jesus win eternal life for us? Here's something that is so important to know. Life is not something we achieve. Forgiveness is not something that we work out. It is, it is also not something that Jesus half did and needs our help to finish. Jesus absolutely finally accomplished the salvation of every last man and woman who God elected, and he did it on the cross. History is not the determination of whether what he did worked or not. History is the outplaying of the plan of God. And so, how did he do that? How did Jesus win eternal life for his people? Philippians 2.5, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Now, isn't that an irony clashing with what we looked at earlier? We looked at two creatures who wanted to be God. Now we're looking at God, God the Son. And he doesn't regard it a thing to be grasped, 
to not take on a human nature. Of course, he can never stop being God. That's by definition impossible. But will he take on a human nature to, and join it to himself so that he would be one person now with two natures, his nature as God and his nature as man? Would he do that? Or would he cling to just being God? Would he cling to that? Satan and Adam say, no, I want to be God, which they never can be. But what does God do? God the Son. He didn't count it as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. So that was the humiliation. He took on himself a human nature. Why? Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now let me re-inflect that. He did what to himself? He humbled himself. So what saves me from the deadly fruit of my pride is the self-humbling of the Son of God. I'm saved by humility, but not my humility. His self-humbling, taking on human nature. And why did he take on human nature? For the death on the cross. Oh, what was that about? Why did he die on the cross? As a gesture of God's love? Hopefully we would make something good out of it. No, that's how he won salvation for every last one of his people. He won salvation by humbling himself to the point of death on the cross. So, guilty, lost, self-ruined sinners can have hope in Jesus only because he did not take the way of pride. He took the way of humility. He humbled himself to death on the cross. And now, how does he work that in us? How does this salvation show itself? What's the effects in me as Jesus saves me? Number two, how he works it in us. That's what I want to look to now. And I'll just read these to you for the sake of time, but do write them down, of course, so that you can look at them yourself later. How he works it in us. First Matthew sixteen twenty four, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, in light of everything we've just spent our time looking at, doesn't that make even more sense to you? Deny himself. Why? Because our natural self wants to deify ourselves. And always will, if unchanged. That is the natural, now, default setting of mankind. Self-deification. So the first thing i got to do, if I want a relationship with God, is I need to deny myself. And it needs to be decisive. I need to take up my cross so that I can die. And then I walk after Jesus. And people try to, talk, to walk after Jesus without denying themselves or taking up the cross, and it never ends well. It does end, though, just not well. Matthew 18, verses 2 to 4, he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted, turned around, and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, therefore, will humble himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The way for a proud person to life is to deny himself, to take up his cross, to humble himself, being born again as it is in the Gospel of John. And then Jesus paints a picture of this in Luke 18. In Luke 18, he talks about two people going down to the temple to pray. There's a tax collector and a Pharisee. And the Pharisee, he says very strikingly, prayed this way to himself. <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's a nice little turn of phrase. We praise this way to himself. God, I thank you that I do all these great things and I'm not like these other people and especially that guy over there. And then Jesus talks about that guy over there. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. Satan wanted to be exalted above the heaven. He wanted to be exalted above the heavens. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he was beating on his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house, declared righteous, rather than the other. Why? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the way to life. And so, as Paul says, finally in Romans 4, 5, but to the one who does not work but believes upon him who justifies the ungodly, 
His faith is counted as righteousness. So salvation is not another program of self-improvement which would feed my pride. And every false cult and sect has a works program. Just feeds our pride and saves nobody. But the gospel says there is nothing you can do to save yourself. What you do is you just drop your arms, throw up your hands, come out. (laughs) Come out, humble yourself, cast yourself on the mercy of God. Deny yourself and believe in Jesus does not work, but believes in the one who justifies the ungodly. These are just four ways of looking at the same event, and it's the death of pride, it's the death of pride, and it's the beginning of the life of God in the soul. So let me just wrap this all up then. Pride month? No, it's more like pride six millennia. It's been pride month since Genesis 3. Do you see that now? Pride Month started in Genesis 3, and it's never ended. That's just human life outside of the garden. Pride killed us. Pride still kills us. Pride will always kill us. But Jesus Christ gives new life. And he can give new life to anybody who simply comes to him on God's terms. Paul lists off the people Pride Month is about, and many others in 1 Corinthians 6. For he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? All the pride months in the world won't get you there. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, now there is straight uh, immorality, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Ah, well, that would certainly be a trumpet blast if, if he ended there. But thank God he does not. Thank God for the next verse. Oh, and I know there's a very famous man who's very famous for showing the foolishness of the, of the trans lifestyle and for asking the question, what is a, what is a woman? But this man is, is a lost man. He has that. He has the law. He has condemnation. But he has no gospel to offer. He shows them the folly. He shows them the wrongness. And when he's done that, well, his work is done. But thank God the gospel's work doesn't end there. The next verse is, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of His God. First, we need to see ourselves and our sin in the light of God and His holy law. But then we see the gospel and the promise of Christ and the fact that no sin is too, too big or too awful or too disgusting. They're all awful and they're all disgusting and they're all deadly. Our sins are disgusting and deadly. But Jesus saves from all sins, washes, sanctifies, declares righteous. And so 2 Corinthians 5.17, the last verse I'll point to, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Oh, every word is so precious. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, not self-created, but created by the grace of God. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And if this sermon goes out to the ears of anyone who is caught up in any of these sins or any other sin, because pride's fruits come in many bushels and on many bushes, and they're all deadly. So you hear that and you feel nailed and you feel convicted and you see, yes, it's not the way I imagined it. I see I'm under God's judgment. Well then, well then, God's judgment fell on Jesus Christ for his people. And if you hear Jesus calling you in this preaching, then come. Come and be welcome to Jesus Christ. He calls sinners to come. And every sinner who comes finds forgiveness and new life in Christ. You hear Christ calling, come. Let nothing stand in your way. Come. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword and which is living and powerful. And we pray that it will teach us all, that it will humble us all, that it will let every last one of us see 
that our only hope before you is your mercy and your grace in Jesus Christ. And that in Jesus Christ, we have abundant mercy and abundant grace. And Father, again, I would pray for any person here who hears the gospel cry from outside of Christ, that that person will be drawn by your Spirit to flee to Christ for life and forgiveness, to know the transforming and saving power of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand so that we can sing together the first two